0: Or the anti-colonial pan-Africanist language par excellence. In other words, is Swahili a language of freedom or is it a language of control? This, writes Morgan Robinson, is the question upon which her book pivots. A language for the world, the standardization of Swahili, explores the tensions inherent in standardization, a process never fully completed but always imagined as final. Spanning the century between 1864 and 1964, the Language for the World offers an original, deeply researched history of the way one island dialect of Swahili came to be the standard. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, as I just mentioned, my guest is Morgan J. Robinson. Morgan is an assistant professor specializing in African history and the history of science at Mississippi State University. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Morgs, this is just a delight to have you on um, because we first met in 2013 when I began graduate school at Princeton, and you were my senior by a year, and we have been talking about this project since. So it's a (laughs) 10-year anniversary. It is. And I am absolutely delighted to be able to talk with you about your new book. And as we're thinking about starting this conversation, you know, I was... I was thinking, I think I know where this project comes from and how Morgan came to it. And then I was thinking, maybe, maybe I don't, I don't know as much as I wish I did. So tell us, um, remind me and tell our listeners what drew this project. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
1: um, you're right that these, these dissertations that turn into books often feel kind of, it, it becomes kind of naturalized, right? Of course, I write about, language and I'm interested in histories of communication, Um, but it really all started because of my own felt linguistic shortcomings. I I took Swahili in college, and I love language learning, but I have no real talent for it. And um, so often I would be kind of you're, you're sort of reading this literature about particularly mission histories, and even once you get into the documents, and they're like, well, the missionaries came. They learned the language, and then they used that language to save souls. And I think to myself, how, how did they just learn the language? I mean, they did not have semester-long courses or Duolingo or any of the things that we have today to learn language. Um, and so it was really that almost selfish interest in the process of language learning that made me most curious to dig into this um, the history of the language.
0: And When did you first go to Zanzibar and start working on the archives there?
1: Yeah, my first trip to Tanzania was not archival at all. It was the it was the trip of a naive, nineteen year old. Um, when I went to Tanzania, I was in Dar es Salaam for a summer, um, volunteering to teach English. Not well, I'm sure. Um, but my first archival trip to Zanzibar was um, twenty. Gosh, it would have been probably the summer of 2012 um, for a quick initial trip to the archives and then have been back to Zanzibar, um, since subsequently a couple of times and then spent some time in the, in the national archives in Dar es Salaam as well.
0: So as you said, in retrospect, it becomes naturalized that this is the project, we you know, that we've been working on, but, it always has an origin story. And before yeah. we get into the kind of um, meatier arguments of your book, I wanted to set the scene a little bit uh, mm-hmm. for listeners who aren't as, as familiar as we are now that you've written it and I've read it. <laughs> um, so your book starts in 1864, and it starts on Zanzibar. Mm-hmm. And as we said, it's a history of Swahili. And um, I wanted you to, to kind of lay the, the landscape out for us a little bit Who's speaking Swahili? Um, mm-hmm. What is the history of Swahili up to this point in the mid-1860s? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. By this period, and really by the, the early 1800s, Swahili had become the lingua franca, the, the language of, of commerce and exchange across the region of East Central Africa, so from the coast all the way in towards the Great Lakes. And this was, it was carried um, on the the caravan trade routes, right? People in this era are trading everything from enslaved people to um, uh, tusks, to elephant tusks, um, in exchange for um, things that are coming in from the coast, including dates, um, and we have other sort of um um sort of trade goods that are being brought into the interior in exchange for these often sort of luxury items that are being sent out into the Indian Ocean world. So by the 1860s um Swahili really is, in particular the 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 dialect spoken on Zanzibar is recognized as, the trade lingua franca, the economically and in some ways politically powerful dialect of the entire region. And so then when you get European intermediaries getting into the game by this period, um, because in the 1860s Zanzibar was the one of the main trade entrepots of the Western Indian Ocean, then the missionaries also start getting involved. They are starting to look for what could be a possible language of communication. And so for them, too, Swahili did seem to be um. The most practical answer, to be sure.
0: Well, just in this these these first you know years of of your book, Swahili is already presenting this opportunity and dilemma in a sense for the historian, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. it's a language that is connecting through trade, but it's also a language that is connecting um, trade to facilitate the trade of enslaved people. Absolutely. It's a language that's used at the court of the Omani Sultan in Zanzibar, mm-hmm. not particularly enlightened regime. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's offering the possibility of missionaries to learn a language with which they can, you know, uh, propagate their faith. Right. Right.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think you hit the nail on the head and and it's it's it is a continued point of friction when we talk about Swahili Um, in some places, including large parts of Uganda, for instance, the language of Swahili is still associated by some people with the trade and enslaved people. To this day, Idi Amin's regime also did not help with the reputation of this language. It was used by the police force and the army um, under Idi Amin's regime. So the reputation of this language, right, which if you talk to any any sociolinguist, which I am absolutely not, but the the prestige of particular languages and the reputation that languages um, have in within various registers and among various speakers, um, we can be talking about the same language and have very different kind of um, associations with those languages based upon historical events and contemporary events. And it's also Swahili and partisans of Swahili in all of its forms, or they come in, they come in a variety of forms. I should say so partisans of Swahili come in a variety of forms. There are speakers who. Um, are very proud of speaking a dialect that is not standard. Then there are those who kind of champion the language as being something, uh, they look to Tanzania as um, an example of the use of a language in order to create national unity um and these things are both true about the language and it's this tension too that is something that i was trying to not solve in the book certainly i don't think it's solvable but to bring to light and to kind of pick apart a little bit and maybe explain a little bit why um, why where some of these tensions originated and then how they played out over the course of the history yeah i should say too in your initial question about the place of swahili as a language in the mid 19th century in East Africa. Um, It has a centuries long history as a written language prior to that. And so among the associations that coastal dwellers in particular have with the language, there are are traditions of um, Mm. legal thinking, philosophical thinking, poetry, art, that are no doubt a part of the history of Swahili if one were to write the kind of long, all encompassing history of it but get a little bit admittedly kind of cut out of this book because of the focus on the standardization of it. But this is all kind of in the mixing pot when we speak of Swahili, particularly in the 19th century.
0: Right. I thought, you know, when I started reading the book, oh, the history of a language, you know, rather than the history of a country or the history of a movement sure. or, oh, wow, what an what an easy register. <laughs> Right, and of course, not at all. It's it's even, <laughs> sure. it's even more complex and amorphous. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that's
1: so uh, maybe kind of drew drew me to this project originally, and that I find so compelling about language. However, you want to study it, it's central to who we are as human beings. Like, we don't think too much about the words that come out of our mouth, except for if you're being recorded for a podcast. But it is, it is it is central to our identity in so many different ways and just our daily functioning in the world that it as a historian, it's maybe the best topic out there because it gives you your social history, your economic history, your political, your cultural history. Um, and so language as an entree, although I've had to kind of continually defend myself about not knowing anything about linguistics really, um, except for sort of layman's knowledge, um, the history of language, can offer this beautiful entree into all sorts of historical questions.
0: Yeah, and the central one, which you know we, we mentioned before, the central one is the question of power. And yeah. I think that this is such an interesting book because we're used to thinking about those debates in colonial and post-colonial Africa around the languages of the metropole around the debates around English, whether it can be Africanized, whether Mm -hmm. it's emancipatory, whether it's just going to repeat colonial legacies about about French, about Portuguese. And this Swahili is is just comes from such a different history, is so complex, has so many different players that it offers us a really interesting entree into this question. And the way that you suggest we think about the complexity of power um, and the history of Swahili is to not to decide that this is a top-down or a bottom-up story, mm-hmm. not to put your stake in the ground, uh, to say, well, this has to be one way or the other, but to accept its complexity. And you offer us yeah. a metaphor in order to accept that complexity, which I think is, is one of the things that will travel um, beyond beyond the, the history of Swahili of your book, which is you offer us this lovely phrase, the duck-rabbit moment. Yes, so you have to yes. tell us about this.
1: Yes, the duck rabbit. I, I I hopefully I wish this is the only moment of this podcast where I wish we had a visual, but right it's this image that appears to some viewers, it's a drawing. Um one of the original copies of it is from I believe a 19th century German newspaper, but it it it, it comes in many forms and I'm sure many people have seen it. It's an image that looks to some viewers like a duck and to some viewers like a rabbit, right? So it's either a beak or ears. Um and there's something Powerful, I would argue about this metaphor. I should also say it's a metaphor that's borrowed from the history of science. I'm not the first to use it in terms of discussing um, flows of of, of of power and, um, and sort of observation um, that move in different directions. Thomas Kuhn, hats off. But I find it very useful to, for talking about this particular um, story because both are true. Once, if you see the rabbit first, and then someone says no to duck, and then you see the duck yourself, you see that both are there. And it's the only way that I could really um, feel comfortable describing this, this history of standard Swahili, because it is at once the language of colonial empire, no doubt about it. It is also the language of anti-colonial protest, It is a potential language of Pan-African unity. And it is also a language that is um, the term language death I hate, but that is um, forcing speakers of some smaller local languages to choose to not speak their language anymore. Right. So it is a force um, that that whose power does move in multiple directions and has throughout the course of its history. So the duck rabbit is just a nice kind of, I think, um, efficient way to express a um, what would otherwise take a historian maybe five minutes to explain what they're talking about.
0: Well, I'm going to put it in my pocket and take it to go. <laughs> it's a yes. duck rabbit moment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so let's get back to the chronology of the book. We are Mm -hmm. in the 1860s. We're in Zanzibar. The UMCA sets up its headquarters there. And, um, you know, as you describe it, there's going to be kind of the rivalry between the Mombasa uh, dialect of Swahili and the Zanzibar dialect of Swahili. And of course, it's Mm -hmm. not clear or inevitable that the Zanzibar dialect, Himgani, is the one that will eventually... um, win out so to speak um Mm -hmm. and you tell us this story so why did the umca end up on zanzibar and uh what were their initial um their what was their initial work with regard to standardizing swahili sure
1: sure the the history of the umca and its early years there's a great book um Lendeg White Magomero, and he he tells the story of the early years of the UMCA, which were disastrous. As the name suggests, they were initially trying to evangelize in Central Africa. They went up the Zambezi River and they were headed toward the Great Lakes. Um, And it did not go well. Um, They got involved in some local um, warfare. Some missionaries were killed. Um, At one point, Livingston comes through I believe he is even, oh, there are people who know more about this than I, but I believe he, he he makes contact with the missionaries when he's very ill. So they're seeing the great explorer sort of in his last days. Um, some of the missionaries themselves become ill and they basically have to retreat. And in mid 19th century East Africa, if you are a British missionary and you have to retreat to safer ground, quote unquote, Zanzibar is the place that you go. It's the place that at this period of time is incredibly well connected to the world. You, um, very soon after their arrival, you get um, regular connections via steamships. Eventually in the 1870s, 1880s, telegraph cables get laid. And so that on top of the, the growing infrastructure of consulates on Zanzibar, because of its role as a trade center, meant that when they had to kind of retreat to lick their wounds, Zanzibar was the place they went to. It worked out well for the UMCA because by being on Zanzibar in the mid 19th century, they encountered the language that would allow them to speak with potential adherents across the region. Um, and so almost, right, this it's, this it's this moment of historical contingency. Their arrival on Zanzibar in August 1864 um, really did... Um, give the UMCA this key with which they unlocked, yes, certainly, um, fairly successful kind of evangelizing mission, but also laying um, the material basis through their handbooks and their um, vocabularies for what would be adopted as standard Swahili in the 20th century.
0: And of course, as you you know mentioned in the beginning, your question: how how did these missionaries begin to Yes. learn this language, of right, course, right. the missionaries are really the sideshow to the real teachers. Uh, th- absolutely.
1: that's it's, it's another sort of what makes this story so fun to tell is that these traditional roles get flipped. The teachers become the students and the students become the teachers. Um, these missionaries are arriving um, with little to no prior exposure to Swahili, At this time, the um, the trade in enslaved people in the Indian Ocean, the British Empire is trying to tamp it down. Um, And so a lot of their first students are formerly enslaved young people who had been, quote unquote, liberated by the Royal Navy and then get dropped off on Zanzibar into the care of the mission. And so they are suddenly dealing with these young people who come from a, a huge variety of linguistic backgrounds more or less, again, prior exposure to Swahili, and they slowly begin learning the language from these students, as well as from some um, important high-status Zanzibaris. So the UMCA is kind of getting these linguistic inputs from, let's say, all sides of the spectrum of Swahili, and they're starting to kind of triangulate towards their mission, which is to be able to communicate with people, ultimately to translate the Bible, um, and be able to um, hopefully evangelize more broadly throughout the region. But it's that, it's those early years, 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, um, when they're trying to do the initial work of translating certainly biblical texts, but also some secular texts for the classroom um, that you can see this beautifully kind of iterative process of language learning and language teaching that's happening within the the classrooms of the mission on Zanzibar.
0: As you're speaking, actually, something that I am not sure that I, I picked up on the book, but I'm hearing as you're speaking, there's something very interesting about the Swahili that the mission will end up standardizing in the sense that it's actually um, cross class, mm-hmm. right? It's not just people, speakers from all different parts of the region. It's actually if you have the kind of courtly language and then you Absolutely. have the language of formerly enslaved young people who's maybe it's their second or their third language. Yeah. You really have, um, that's, that's super interesting. You know, I, I hadn't really picked up on that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I want to invite you to give us maybe an example. Um, of this kind of teaching process, teaching from below, perhaps we might yeah. call it. And yeah. how do the students really um, tell them? Let the missionaries know where they're where they're erring on. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, there's lots of, you know, missionaries. Uh, they write everything down. And they write to each other. So there's great sources for actually getting at what this process looks like. Um, so there's a ton of examples of, for instance, the missionaries being warned of, of bad words, whether that's obscene words in some cases, or just words that don't quite fit in the missionaries' translations. Um the discussion about how to translate the word for priest was also something that um, was obviously very important to the missionaries, but there was there's a series of letters between two of the missionaries, Edward Steer and Lewin Pennell. This is in the 1870s, and these were the two who were both involved um, very much with the translation projects of the mission, but they were also in the classroom they were doing the teaching at the high school on Zanzibar and they're talking about, okay, well, how do we translate this word for priest? Um, they're writing letters because steer was on leave back in England and pedals saying, well, I asked these students, um, or I asked, um, these, the, the sort of people that I was speaking to, and they suggested these words, but then I asked the Cadi because they were working with um, a legal scholar on Zanzibar as well. And he says that perhaps these words might imply Rather, um, the idea of a soothsayer, or uh, sort of um, someone who is engaging in kind of um, traditional practices of telling the future, certainly not something we would want the notion of priest to be associated with. And so, after this kind of series of back and forth, they're trying—they're trying really hard to find a Swahili word for this. Um, they end up with this word kasisi which is a word that um, they use in subsequent um, translations of the word priest, but they use it interchangeably with padiri, which is on its surface, right, linked to padre. I admit that I'm not exactly sure whether that was a direct borrowing from maybe Portuguese or whether this is also um, this uh, sort of linguistic um um, leftovers from other kind of language contact but for the first few years they're kind of using both of these words interchangeably until cassisi becomes the word that they use in the majority of their translations for for priest so that's one where the the kind of the um the feedback from their various interlocutors help them triangulate a word that would express the meaning that they want to have without potentially reflecting prior beliefs um, that's what they're really nervous about. I mean, these missionaries are even very willing to borrow um, words with Islamic connotations. They would rather that than words with connotations um, in terms of sort of local or, or prior religious beliefs. Um, so that's one of the, the sort of kind of stories of iterative language learning. Um, and if you'll, so if you'll indulge me, just one more example about um, word choice, particularly um that prior example was one that's really, it was determined by the missionaries, right? The final choice of the word that would be entered in the dictionaries and put in the translations, it was their say. And that that was the case ultimately in a lot of these discussions about language. But it wasn't always the case. The students did have the power to push back and particular with the spoken language, right? That's much more difficult to control than the written language. So, there's one example where a missionary priest is writing to his colleague, and he says, "You know, these these students, they really have such a corrupt language. They what started in play is now what they use more often than the proper Swahili word. So they use the word kuchenja. This is a um a construction out of the um the Swahili infinitive marker ku and a slightly modified version of the English verb change. So, And the missionary says, they use this now instead of using kubadili, which means to change in Swahili. Um, And yet it was a habit that he could not stamp out in his classrooms. And for me, this is just a, um, a clear example of the language being used among the students themselves for their own purposes they are invested in the language and its communicative abilities in order to, I mean, think about it. These are for the most part, formerly enslaved young people. They are using this language to rebuild a new community on Zanzibar. And yes, no doubt they are invested in the missions project of evangelization to some degree by necessity, right? This is the landscape in which they find themselves but they're also using the language sometimes in ways that um, are not the approved ways in order to make these connections amongst themselves. And so I think that's, um, again, uh, I try as much as possible to pull some of these examples out in the book too, because as much as this is a story about standardization, which seems something that it seems to imply that the language becomes set in stone, it was never, ever set in stone. And the influences on the language and the people who were able to use it in creative ways and for their own purposes. Um, I mean, there's just countless examples of that across this history.
0: And certainly, if you are a Swahili phone, this book is really rich with these kind of textured examples, which I can appreciate, but you know, only only to some extent. So, I really invite listeners who are Swahili speakers and readers to to engage the text in in, in that register. Um, another one word that I learned uh, while reading this book was. Upalekwa, Mm -hmm. which you tell us means community building. And I think this is the word that um, kind of designates the process that's happening while the missionaries are busy working on their dictionaries. What's really Mm -hmm. happening in the mission amongst the African students, amongst the formerly enslaved and um, freeborn students is the creation of a community, a network, which eventually becomes much larger than simply Zanzibar or simply Mm -hmm. Tanganyika, uh, and really extends even all the way to to England. And you give us um, an example of Agnes Sapuli, who you have, you have her letters, which is over the course of almost 20 years, which is really wonderful. And she's, she is someone who is really actively engaged in this work of building community of building Upalekwa. So tell us a little about Agnes.
1: Yeah, one of, one of my favorite sort of characters from the book, absolutely. Um, I should say too that um, there are two other works that um, engage with and tell the story of Agnes Sapuli. One is um, Pollock and um, Russell's News from Masasi, and then Andreana Prichard's um, Sisters in Spirit also features Agnes to some degree. Um, but obviously all three of us are looking um, at this story from different angles. Um, but Agnes Sapuli was she was a young woman who lived um, in in what would become Tanganyika, um, near the Masasi station, which is in today what is southeastern um, Tanzania. And as a young um, as a young girl, she lived near the mission station. She encountered the mission teachers early on. And she decided um, after a a year or so of being in the mission school that she wanted to be baptized. And in the initial sort of um, letters, it's actually not Agnes writing, but it's her teacher who's writing to a potential sponsor in England, um, asking for support for this young student. This happened a lot with the UMCA. They had a fairly active home community that would that would sponsor even specific children. And so Agnes is ultimately um, named Agnes because she is sponsored by St. Agnes's church in London. And this re- started, like you said, 20 years of correspondence between Agnes Sapuli and her, um, her um, sponsor in England, who he was the head of the parish at St. Agnes in London, um, Reverend Child. And Agnes was writing in Swahili. It's a question whether she was writing herself or whether she had an amanuensis. The handwriting does change sometimes. All the letters are in Oxford and they they include both a Swahili and an English version. So clearly there was some copying and translating going on. But um, the letters are remarkable for, first off, their linguistic sophistication. I mean, they are, you can read them like you would any other Swahili letter from the the turn of the century until today, also her her expressions of, um, her sense of closeness to the parish in London, she feels that they are part of a single community, and what they are connected by is certainly their faith, but also this language that she is using to communicate with this priest in London. And then also the, just the reports of daily life from the region. I mean, the, the, um, the detail about, um, whether it's famine in certain years, whether it's the visiting of people to the mission station and the kind of joy that brings down to little greetings to specific people that are being sent back and forth. Again, they've never met each other, but there's a sense of intimacy that's remarkable in these letters and it's all being done in Swahili. So, Agnes Sapuli for me is one of the most um, sort of vivid examples that I have of the language being in use out of the control of the missionaries. No doubt she was married to a man who worked for the mission. The mission is her life. And yet she's using this language to build connections um, that really aren't at the behest of the UMCA necessarily. So this for me is... um, a a clear example of it being not not just a top-down story or not just even a, um, a story of the kind of upper crust of the mission, learning and engaging with this language. It is starting to trickle down to users of the language, both written and spoken across the region. Because I should mention too, by the 1870s, 1880s, the UMCA is opening up mission stations on the mainland as well. So by the the late 1870s, they have missions as far far west as um, Lake Nyasa, which is now Lake Malawi, right? So at this point, it really is becoming a regional force, the mission version of the language.
0: As you're talking about Agnes's letters, it just makes me (laughs) nostalgic for that era of history writing, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, where people could just bang out a 600-page book without worrying about having an argument and put every last detail that they would Absolutely. like to put in there, yes, you know? Yes, 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 yes. You just want to hear all of those little oh, details in sure. Agnes' letters, but you can in a monograph that has to be under 200 pages, right? That's the, of thing, no. that's the thing.
1: Well, I mean, a little plug. I did write an article about Agnes um, in the Journal for Eastern African Studies, but even that, even there, you can't give all the detail. I mean, she was, I mean, one has to be careful about, um, um, is it Jill Lepore who writes about finding a lock of, I don't know if it's Thomas Jefferson, somebody's hair in the archive, and suddenly having the desire to stroke it and thinking maybe I've gotten too close to my subject. That, did, that danger exists. But um, it does seem to me that Agnes was a, a, a remarkable figure. I I don't know that she was exceptional. She could have been surrounded by dozens of other amazing teachers, mothers, wives and sort of forces of nature in this region in the in, in the at the turn of the century. But um she's the one who survived in the archive, right? Again, it's the contingency of that. And yeah, no, the stories are amazing. I mean she was the mother of she had she she was she gave birth to six children, only two of whom survived past childhood. She died during her seventh pregnancy. I mean it's it, she survived World War I only to die in childbirth. It, it's um yeah, it's a, one of those stories where it's either uh, totally inspirational or, or totally depressing, depending upon which day you kind of encounter it.
0: Right. Well, you mentioned World War One, mm-hmm. so let's quickly address um, proportional, you know, to the time that it lasted, the the German presence, sure, on Zanzibar and in Tanganyika, and the Germans' relationship to Swahili.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it was Derek Peterson who wrote that German policy, German language policy was desultory. And I think that kind of sums it up. Though the Germans were um, among the, the sort of leading academics in terms of comparative linguistics in this period, no doubt. They're interested in Bantu languages. But on the ground, there was not a set policy for standardization. Swahili was the language of administration um, during most of the German period. But because of tensions back in Berlin and realities on the ground, that was never really stated. I mean, there were some there were some interest groups in in Germany that wanted German to be the language of the German Empire. And then there's other interest groups that think that German needs to be reserved for settlers, for instance. And so those those tensions within the sort of um, German political spectrum led to a situation wherein, yes, de facto. Swahili was the language of administration, but du jour, um, it was not written necessarily until towards the very end of the German period. And then, um, yeah, they lose their colonies. And so that what might have been then a push towards standardization gets cut short.
0: And who is there to pick up the baton, but the British, but the British, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. 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 So 1925, the Interterritorial Language Committee is convened, and this is going to be the body that from the interwar period until the basically through World War II is going to be kind of the bureaucratic entity that works on the standardization project. And um, so it's bringing together now, not just linguists from one mission or another, but Mm -hmm. officials who are representing the four territories, or Tanganyika, Zanzibar, Kenya, and Uganda, and trying to stamp to to decide what's the dialect, what's what what exactly is the Swahili that we're going to use administratively, bureaucratically. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the passions are inflamed, because of course, each dialect and each standardization project represents so much labor and so much anguish and so much investment on behalf of the missions and um, in the end the Zanzibar dialect wins out over the Mombasa dialect for example Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. one of the missionaries who's been so deeply invested in the Mombasa dialect so overwhelmed but you say he has to be led out of the room in tears reportedly that is the case yes
1: <laughs> yes tensions ran high tensions ran high and it's I think it's particularly telling too that these decisions got made at an education conference so this 19, 1925 conference um was called by um, River Smith the who was um in charge of the education department um, in 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 Tanganyika And it was really Swahili, or I should say, the choice of of a language of education was just one of the many issues that they were discussing, but it was naturally a part of the conversations that they were going to have, because in order to standardize their education, they felt they needed their education system and offerings and expectations. They had to standardize the the language of, of, of instruction and assessment. Um, and so it was in that context that, um, a special committee on standardization was set and they made, they made the decision and they, they, they referenced specifically the UMCA. They say that they will use the handbook of the UMCA, uh, the grammar of steer and the handbook of, of, um, AC Maden in order to, to serve as the basis of, of standard Swahili. And this is, as you say, um, You read the book very hard. I'm very impressed. Um, As you say, this is the moment where it becomes an official project, right? Whereas before it had been um, semi-official, it had been this project of standardization had been um, at once missionary-driven, but also clearly the participants are go much wider than that. Here it becomes um, an official body that will then be tasked with quote unquote, capital S standardization.
0: And like the Berlin conference or the Brazzaville conference there, except for Felix Ebuia, there's no Africans present yes. on this body until 1939. Yes, on the
1: ILC. Yes, there were two, there were two East Africans present at the initial 1925 conference. But no, there were no Africans appointed to the ILC until 1939. And of course, that was wartime. So they didn't have any meetings until 1945 anyway. So there was no African um, official, I should say, participation um, until that 1945 meeting.
0: Okay, so let's take the story into the the post-war period. Mm -hmm. Um, At at this point, there are uh, Swahili, English, English, Swahili dictionaries Mm -hmm. that have been published, Swahili, Swahili also. right? And so to some extent, you could say that at least the kind of baseline of the standardization project has been established, even as we know that it's an ever uh, ongoing and like um, sort of impossible actual task to complete. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But what the... British are turning their attention to is now less so the codification and more as you write the creation Mm -hmm. of literature and materials in the Swahili language. And so they try to incentivize Africans to write creatively and produce materials in Swahili so that they can spread and inculcate the habit of Swahili literacy. Right. Um, this is very much also part of a kind of developmentalist project after World War II. The Colonial Welfare and Development Act funds mm-hmm. are actually important for sponsoring um, these projects. Yeah. So, tell us a little bit about how they try to solicit uh, these writing contributions and the kind yeah. of um, complexities that they open up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, some of the um, some of the ways that um, the the entrees that I Found into this question, right? This move from codification to creation um, were the essay contests that the first the ILC and then um, its what would I call it? Maybe it's 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 sister department. It's an organization that um, came after the war. The East African Literature Bureau. It was created after the war. Um, started off as kind of an equal with the ILC, but then as this move from codification to creation became more the focus of um, colonial policy in in the region at this period, it started to get it started to get set, certainly more attention and also more funding from the colonial state. Um, so the East African Literature Bureau started um, or took over from the ILC the hosting of these essay contests. How the essay contests were. Um, were advertised was mainly in the bulletin of the ILC. So I certainly can't make the argument that it was a kind of um, territory-wide call that every school child would have encountered. So for the most part, the people who ended up contributing to these essay contests were, um, many of them were uh, teachers within government schools or the sort of upper class students. and these, they ran the gamut. There would be there would be contests for set topics. It would be things like, how do you celebrate Christmas in your community? Or what is typical uh, sort of um, seasonal harvest in your community? These sort of like maybe kind of ethnographic type of questions. And then they started over the years too to open up these kind of open topics um, and to even encourage fiction writing. And you can see in the the um because within the the documents of the East African Literature Bureau, there are some of the assessments of the the essays that we received. And there is this tug of war between wanting a quote unquote, authentic African voice with quote unquote authentic African topics, right? I hope that the listener can hear the sarcasm gripping in my voice. And also this desire to, uh, they're, they're also looking for creativity and how they define that is never clear. Does that mean that you have to be creative within the bounds that the literature bureau accepts as traditional? Does it mean following British or English Anglophone models, are were they willing to um, award brand new forms of literature and writing? And it's a constant tension within the assessments of these essays as they're coming in. And um, I'm sure for the writers would have been kind of frustrating. It's right, you know, you constantly have one one reviewer who wants one thing and one reviewer who wants another and they're irreconcilable. We all know that story. Um, but there are some great literature, um, I should say, literary figures who came out of these contests. Um, among them, Shaban Robert, Ngugi um contributed, while he was at Macrare, he contributed to um, one of the essay contests of the East African Literature Bureau. Mohammed Abdullah, um, his one of his early detective novels that was set on Zanzibar, came through one of these um, Literature Bureau contests. And so here we are again with a duck rabbit, right? The colonial entity that is sponsoring writing contests in a particular kind of Swahili, right? They want Swahili. They did work in other languages, too. There were contests for other languages. But for the Swahili contest, they want a particular kind of Swahili, which is to say standard Swahili. And yet, these authors are able to, within those constraints, um, write things that um, you know. I think any of us would be loath to call um, uh, uh, sort of uh, toady, right? I mean, they are Shaban Robert, one of the. Um, one of the most kind of subversive writers, I think, in standard Swahili, and yet his some of his early writing was happening with the Literature Bureau. And so, again, what, what do we have here? Do we have power? Do we have emancipatory power or oppressive power? Um, we have both happening at the same time. And it should also be um, attributed to the greatness of these writers that they are able to, within these constraints, create what is literature that that stands up to this day.
0: So I guess at this point we are getting towards the late colonial period, and beyond this um, um, aspect of um, literary creation, there's also the legal political context, mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. rising demands for independence or at least mm-hmm. rising nationalism, and then maybe later de- demands for dependent uh, independence. And Swahili plays a role in this, in yeah. that there's really um, claims for the colonial state to be more transparent yeah. with its legal uh structures by through translation absolutely yeah
1: yeah it's kind of one of the shocking things you go into you, you sort of start a project and and you um you don't always know the things that will that will become kind of some of the most important building blocks of the argument but it's a shocking it's a shocking fact that the British colonial regime in East Africa did not have a set policy of translation into Swahili, despite Swahili being one of the official languages of administration um, throughout the period. It was not until uh, there were constant calls for the translation of laws and regulations into Swahili, and it wasn't until the 1950s that it even started really happening with any regularity at all. And it certainly wasn't until the independence period that um, laws started to be systematically translated into Swahili. And so um, these, these I, I kind of liken it to this, um, we talk a lot about how um, the notion of citizenship in the, the sort of the anti-colonial period and towards the independence period um, was a sort of transformative notion right, to go from a colonial subject to a citizen means that one is making perhaps different kind of demands on the state and that when the citizen suddenly um, uh, starts to demand independence, right, this is this kind of sea change towards the um, the move towards anti-colonialism. And there is with Swahili, it becomes this kind of, um, it becomes this avenue of of linguistic citizenship, I would say, that people are, are, and these are mainly people certainly who are already engaged with the state in some way. Your clerks, interpreters, um, people who are uh, working in the court system, they're the ones who see the kind of importance and the, the justice that would come via translation and the injustice that is done when a citizenry cannot read the laws that govern it. And so it, I think that in this last chapter, the the point i'm the argument I'm trying to make is that alongside these other notions of citizenship that is leading people to call for the ouster of the colonial state, their linguistic citizenship is one of them, and that Swahili really it was the language
0: with which people were making demands,
1: but also about which they were making demands.
0: Well, I wanted to close since this is a book essentially, you know, about uh, Tanzania with the linguistic story of uh Julius Nyerere the first president yes, sure. and his relationship to swahili which you which you bring to us it's just a remarkable yeah, anecdote
1: yeah yeah it's so there's um so one of um so early on Nyerere is doing these kind of political safaris around the country trying to draw up support for TANU the Tanganyika African National Union the 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 party of independence And on these political safaris, he's using Swahili. And indeed Nerere, a a scholar um, in in so many ways, he had um, as part of one of his degrees, he had translated a couple of works of Shakespeare into Swahili. And so he's clearly, he can handle his Swahili. And yet, Um, Bibi Titi Muhammad, who was um, another member of TANU, another major political figure in the 1950s and in the independence period in um, in Tanganyika, she claimed later in life that she had taught taught Narere Swahili. And it seems at once uh, this remarkable statement, right? This man who had translated Shakespeare into Swahili. And yet her point is that Narere had to buy the book Swahili. He had learned it; it was not his first language. He had learned it um, in school, and he couldn't—he couldn't maybe connect with his listeners in the way that she thought he would need to in order to be able to become this political force. And so he had to learn his Swahili again from BBT. Um, and so I also think that this um, this moment, besides being this uh, wonderful indication of the importance of of the um, female nationalists, which there's fantastic, um, Susan Geiger book about this, right? It's fantastic, right? How important the women were to to Tanganyika nationalism. It also is an indicator to us of how many different registers of Swahili existed and still do exist in East Africa. Yes, it was the language of Tanu. Yes, it was the language of um, anti-colonial nationalism. Yes, it was standardized, quote unquote, by this time. And yet, what kind of Swahili you're using in any given situation, you still had to have a gut feeling for that. And you still had to have the linguistic capabilities to change your register. Um, And so Nerere, who's given all the credit for bringing Tanzania together as a nation with the language, which no doubt, right? It was a a powerful decision that was made in this period. um, He had to learn his Swahili from BBTT.
0: Yeah, it's such an evocative anecdote for me because it also almost seems like it's a way of reading the kind of demissionification yeah. of Swahili right yes he had to that's kind right. of unlearn his mission learned Swahili to learn yeah. the language of the people yeah of, that that he wanted to govern or you know the, yeah the yeah that was he had to learn born. it from a
1: Muslim woman <laughs>
0: that's right The anti anti-white <laughs> yeah. man Christian mission right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and, and and of course, uh, Nyerere's decision to use Swahili in governance and um, his Pan-Africanist project also really inspires Black cultural nationalists outside of East Africa, including mm-hmm. in, in the United States. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there is a, a coda to your book is about also uh, the creation of Kwanzaa, the yeah. holiday in the United States and how Swahili becomes uh, the Swahili terms that are part of the Kwanzaa ceremony become um, appropriated to index a Pan-African global and global Black freedom.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 um, Karenga, the 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 um, the, uh, uh, the the leader of uh, an organization called US here in the states and um, the founder of Kwanzaa, he even said specifically that he had chosen Swahili not because it was a heritage language for himself or um or most black americans but rather because it was supra tribal in a way because it had this if it could bring together so many different kinds of people in africa maybe it could do the same for his movement and so again the 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 um the symbolic power of Swahili, it's another chapter in the symbolic power of this language, as well as the practical power. I, I think those things also have to be said together always. It is, it is not simply a symbolic language because it—it it is a powerful practical tool and has been throughout this long, long history.
0: Morgan, it has been so much fun to talk to you about this book, this project that I've you know, tangentially seen develop over the last 10 years. <laughs> you have,
1: you have. Oh, it's so been a pleasure. Of yeah, it's really, it's really a, been.
0: It's really a lovely book. And I just want to impress um, upon listeners that this conversation has been really easy to have and really flowed because the book is so well written. Um, oh, I appreciate really a wonderful prose stylist and it's, it's very readable and it's super interesting. And if your interest has been piqued, I really recommend picking it up and spending some time yeah. with it.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity and this is such a, such a wonderful venue for these conversations. And I should say too, it it is available for free download on the website of Ohio University Press. So people should go and download it and pass it along as much as they would like.
0: Fantastic. So MORGs, this is the second podcast that we've recorded in our illustrious history. Our career, our, yeah, our audio career. (laughs) So I really look forward to our third sometime down the line. Yes. Thank you for talking to us about your wonderful new book, A Language for the World. And um, well, I'm looking forward to the next one.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. We'll, we'll talk in 10 years. <laughs>